Welcome to the IoT podcast powered by Paratus People. Be among the first to find out what's happening in the fascinating and growing world of IoT from the industry leaders themselves. Welcome to the IoT podcast show. Today I am joined by Yan Yongboom. Yang is the co-founder and CTO of Edge Impulse. Edge Impulse are the leading development platform for embedded machine learning used by over 1,000 enterprises and over 10,000 projects worldwide. Yan is a technology evangelist. He has a fantastic background in embedded engineering and has written thousands of patches for open source projects. Yan, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Wonderful intro, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I had a little bit of help with the intro. We have a great research team, so uh, <laughs> you're very welcome. Yeah, and could, could you kick off by just explaining a little bit about your background um, and what Edge Impulse actually does? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really cool to be in the IT podcast. Um, for me, the whole reason that I started doing embedded engineering was because I saw kind of the IoT happening from, you know, from somewhere behind me. And I was like, okay, this, this train is so cool. I want to jump on it. Um, so I was building connected devices already um, when I first heard about all of this back in 2013, but mobile phones. Um, and at some point I wanted to have something that ran longer than a week on a battery and then the only way, but still connected, so the only way you could go down was, was the embedded route. So I started building devices, um, smart offices was one of the solutions that we started working on in 2015. Um, and I thought it was so cool that I really wanted to shape kind of the future of this. So I went to work for ARM out of Cambridge. Um, in early 2016 as a principal engineer. And there I ran a software team that was kind of forward-looking. How do we think embedded developers are going to write software five, 10 years from now? And all of a sudden I realized that while we have lots of IT devices all around us, um, they do very little useful stuff. There's so many like temperature sensors that send a temperature value every hour to the clouds, but, not, but there's so much more data all around us. So we started building uh, some embedded machine learning things to see if we can run ML on, on really tiny IoT devices. Um, and yeah, after, after a bit of research, we actually realized we could, but it was really hard for embedded engineers to build that. Um, so you kind of need a team of data scientists to really build a good solution. So about a year and a half ago, uh, me and my co-founder decided to leave ARM and set out to build a company that lets embedded engineers really apply embedded machine learning to their embedded projects. So it's Edge Impulse, as you said, it's super widely used. We're 15,000 projects now. That, that number was wow. from two months ago. It's absolutely okay. insane in the amount of volume and, and projects that, that people start creating. But Edge Impulse is an engineering tool, a bit like an IDE, um, okay. that helps you find correlations in sensor data and helps you understand the world a bit better um, through that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we, we share a similar background. My background as in, in embedded engineering at university, uh, I, w I went one way, you clearly went the other. Uh, but I, I know ARM very well. And that's really interesting. Um, it must be quite daunting, I suppose, as well, really, Jan, to, to go out and uh, fly the nest, as it were, and, and, and set up a business. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the, the for me, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I as a technologist more, I, I really like building new things and trying to push, trying to push the limit of what's possible. Um, but I think the opportunity here was, was so big and I see it as such a potential transformation for the way that we write software 
not that it will take over everything, right? It's just a, another tool in your toolbox, but it has a, a potential effect on the the 30 billion MCUs that ship every year that we figured let's let's actually do that and let's try it. Um, and it worked out tremendously well. We're, we're a year and a half old. We're, we're 25 people now. It's, yeah, you blink your eyes and, uh, and yeah, the whole world has changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, you know, that's a really nice, uh, nice problem to have, isn't it? Growth, especially right now, but through the pandemic and, and the struggles that other people have had in, in different industries. It's, it's, it's really heartwarming to, to hear of success stories. Uh, uh, yeah, I think for us, yeah, it, it sounds a bit weird, but so we signed our, our lead customer um, in, in November 2019, um, right before COVID hit. Um, but it was a it's a customer in consumer health. And all of a sudden, when pandemic hit, they realized they were sitting on lots and lots of data and they were using a at that point to do to find correlations in uh, uh, in sleep and the right. sleep classification. But all of a sudden, they realized that lots of data about people getting sick and um, um, and typical health patterns. So they started using Enchimples also to do COVID research. So that was for us a really, a really great catalyst um, in terms of growing. Yeah. And, and what is it that um, Edge Impulse, how, how does it differ compared to peers within the same industry? Um, yeah, it's a hard question. Um, so on one end, I think we're still trying to show people that embedded machine learning is possible, that a, a tiny MCU, a little camera module here, that a chip one square centimeter is actually capable of running some machine learning um, and telling, telling people about that. That is, I think, the biggest challenge. Um, and it's not so much about competition at this point. Hmm. The, the real competition we see is, is do it yourself. Um, it's people that say, well, I've hand-tuned my DSP algorithms for the last 30 years. Um, I can do better than an ML algorithm. And, and that's fine, actually. Um, I think for us, it's we'll show you what's possible. We'll always try to tell you never trust what a machine learning algorithm tells you just by face value. Always add some checks, et cetera, um, in there. And so far, that, that seems to resonate quite well. Sure. And, and, and is that from, so from a technological standpoint, the... So the microcontroller unit, is, is, it, is it because people believe that ML is usually based around quantum computing and, and large scale devices with lots of power? And so they're probably a little bit confused that, that you can actually start doing an ML on an MCU. I, I do think that's the case. And that's, that's where I came from, right? When in 2017, Neil Tan, one of my engineers at ARM, in a bar in Taipei told me, hey, I got this machine learning model running on a, on a Freedom K64F. I was right. like, no way. <laughs> like, how do you do that? That's 256 kilobytes of RAM. Um, but the, the thing that, I, that we realized is a machine learning algorithm is not, is, is not special, right? During training, it requires lots of inputs and lots of outputs, and then it finds a hidden correlation, and that's a super expensive process. Um, but what comes out of a machine learning model is just math. Um, and the number of parameters that you have there, you can kind of control. So you can you can set the constraints of what you have in an MCU um, as kind of the boundaries of, of the formula that you want to find. But in the end, what a machine learning model finds is just mathematics. And MCUs are incredibly good at math. Like a, a typical Cortex-M4F can do 40 million operations a second. Um, and and that's definitely fast enough to do 
uh, and we realized that that is actually fast enough to do real-time audio classification, uh, image classification, stuff happening all around you. And I think once people see that as a realization, um, they'll start realizing that, that, yeah, you can actually do this on MCU when it's actually feasible. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for our listeners out there that may not understand um, you know, machine learning and embedded to, to perhaps the degree that you do, what are the use cases around embedded machine learning and, and, and why is it important? Yeah, good question. Um, I think the, what machine learning does, it is it finds a hidden correlation in your data. So let's say that you're building a control algorithm um, and you want to know if, if water is uh, cooking. So you have a temperature sensor, you put it in a pot of water and you know, you'd notice, okay, well, the temperature is 102 degrees and the water is cooking. Great. Now I cool it down to 98 degrees Celsius and now the water is not cooking. Cool. I write a control loop. If temperature is above 100 degrees, then water is cooling. Um, works great. Now you deploy it to the field. Someone goes mountain climbing. He's at two kilometers height and he, he looks at it. And according to your sensor, uh, at 98 degrees, the water should not be cooking, but you observe and it actually is. So you know there's a correlation somewhere between the altitude that you are, the temperature, and the cooking temperature of water. Um, machine learning can help you unravel that, that hidden correlation. So it is a tool, it's an engineering tool that says, well, I have lots of input data and I know what the outcome should be, but I can't find this correlation myself. I can't write this control loop myself. Then machine learning can help you uncover that. Um, so you can do it on very simple use cases. So everywhere where currently you have a control loop um, where data comes in and you need to make, you have thresholds set up um, and you want to respond to that, that's great. But you can also do much higher, you can also do things where a human can't really see this correlation. So audio classification, um, do I hear glass breaking? Yes or no? Really hard to program it out if you have a waveform, relatively easy for machine learning. Um, Image classification. So we have a super cool project with Smart Parks where they have a better or a solar-powered camera that takes a snapshot of the savanna, and when it sees an elephant or a poacher, it sends a signal over a satellite because then a ranger should take a look. Um, and then a super wide variety of predictive maintenance and machine monitoring use cases. Like, does this machine oscillate differently than all the other machines in my factory, mm. etc. Mm. So anywhere where you have lots and lots of data. You know that there's somewhere a hidden correlation or you can determine it yourself, um, but it's too too difficult to write by hand. That's where machine learning helps. Yeah. And, and would you say that was the main difference between ML-based uh, or, or more server-side uh, projects and, and actually embedded machine learning, that real-time useful information that you can get from, from sensor-driven data? I th yeah, I think... It's also a bit of a personal uh, preference, I think. Like I, I think the world around me is so incredibly fascinating. Um, so I want to write algorithms and I want to write devices that actually interact with that environment, rather than. And uh, a lot of the kind of the way that machine learning has grown was in server farms because they were dealing with data that was already on the server farm. Like, mm. is there fraud in my credit card transaction? Yes or no? And that is really easy to scale, right? If you need a larger algorithm, you spin up a larger virtual machine in the cloud and you just and you run it there. The interesting part with only with ML in the in the IoT sense is that you're very constrained by what the chip can do that that's sitting on there, what your MCU can do. 
if my model doesn't fit on this MCU, then I might either need to redesign or I can't make my bomb or anything like that. So Remedia yeah. is much more interesting. It's and the sensor data all around us and constrained environments, which is which is always fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I guess you know, on that note, Jan, there, there must be quite a lot of challenges um in, in you know in in developing embedded solutions for for ml projects what are what are the main things that you've come across in starting uh edge impulse um so the, the main challenge that we yeah i think the hard part with machine learning algorithms is that there's always some sort of black box components right because yeah you can ask the machine to find you a a, ma a magic formula that classifies things but can you trust it and that is important already if you deploy this in a server farm. We've seen lots of discrimination um, by ML algorithms. And it's really easy to point at the computer and say the computer says no. And that's already really bad. Um, but this gets even worse if you start deploying that in, in millions of devices where you don't even have control over, over the algorithm anymore. Right? If I um, ship an ML algorithm in the control loop of a industrial system, I want to be very, very sure that it behaves exactly the way it should, even considering all the edge cases. Um, so we try to help a little bit with that. So we try to visualize kind of the feature space of what we have covered. Um, so you, so we kind of can tell the developer, say, hey, there's kind of this whole class of potential data that you haven't uh, uploaded or collected in your data set. Maybe you should do something about it. Um, and we had some safeguards here. So we never trust the output of a neural network just by the face value, because neural networks are very unpredictable. They, yeah. they work really well on data that looks like anything they've seen before, but very poorly, kind of random, at data they've never seen before. So we typically use stuff like anomaly detection models next to it, to say, oh, this looks like data I've never seen before. I'm not going to trust the rest of my ML algorithm. I'm going to alert an operator or send something off. Um, yeah. And and that explainability is, I think, really important if you if you're going to deploy this in embedded systems because mm -hmm. once you put it out there, it's out there. You can very often never change it. Right. There's lots of devices that are never connected. Um, and the last thing is if you have a safety critical feature. Just write it out by hand, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even as a last safety guard, right? And uh, I think that's really important. It's an engineering tool. Don't treat it as a black box. Yeah, got it, got it. And, and it's interesting because one of the first questions that I asked you was, um, uh, how does your business differ from from peer groups? And, and you mentioned that, that really there isn't many peers. There isn't many people doing this. Um, that's curious because it seems obvious. And I think, you know, the, the age old adage is, it's obvious when you know how. It was easy when you know how, right? Why do, why do you think that you're quite pioneering within Edge Impulse in putting ML on, on embedded devices and on MCUs? Why has it not been done before? Yeah, so it's it's been done a little bit, right? But only by really large teams that, cons that consist of both embedded experts as well as experts on the ML side, um, as well as data scientists that know how to design for constrained systems. And... Because we probably all have a device in our pocket that does embedded ML all the time. The, the chip that's responsible to respond to Hey Siri or, or OK Google does not run on the main application processor. It's a separate DSP, really small uh, side processor that runs all the time and just listens for the keyword. Um, 
But yeah, only Google and Apple and Amazon have been able to really build systems that work really well in 20K of, of RAM. Um, and for me, to, we realized that when we were at ARM, and the only th we had this amazing research team that was capable of making the actual math run incredibly fast on normal MCUs. And then the only thing, the only demo that we could basically get together was, oh, here's the pre-trained neural network. Here's some predefined inputs, and I will print over serial, we'll print the output. Like, um, and that's because the if you have like this this Venn diagram of of data scientists know how to build these models here, and then you have embedded engineers that know how to build embedded systems here, there's no overlap. Mm. There's there's virtually no one that can do both of these things. But it's required to have these two people in the same room and have them speak the same language to build a successful system. Um, yeah. So what we try to do with our Gimples is say, well, we're going to skip the data scientist here. So we're going to have a bunch of, so we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this from the perspective of the embedded engineer. So we always start with signal processing first. You know, we've been doing on-device learning or on-device analysis for a long time, which is called the signal processing. Let's do that first. And then let's build some, some tools that help you get some of this data science knowledge into your own little bubble. And that allows embedded engineers to apply their knowledge to their to their problems. Um, and that is much more useful. That you don't need to have this this translation layer or this team of PhDs or the, uh, or, or the data scientists sitting next to you to help build that. And yeah, we're early with that, but I do think that this is going to be a tool that every embedded developer will have under his belt five to ten years from now, um, yeah. because it's just it's so useful. But we're we're super early. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and that's useful that you mentioned signal processing, right? Because clearly this is this is key to to embedding them out, isn't it? Um, and and again, for the benefit of our listeners that don't perhaps understand signal processing in in in, in the depth that you do, that, that maybe I understand a little bit, could you go into a bit more around that? Yeah, sensor data typically is very noisy, right? Um, so let's say I have a um, a rotating machine. And I have a sensor on that, and that measures the acceleration. So if it's rotating perfectly, I'll probably see a graph like this, a sinus wave. Um, so if I want to know how fast that machine is oscillating or machine is rotating, um, okay, so yeah, it wants to break. So you have the sine wave, but it's noisy because, well, you know, there's lots of other stuff happening with the machine as well. So first, I want to denoise this signal um, just to make it make my life a little bit easier. So we can use a filter to do that, a standard signal processing um, thing. So we use a low-pass filter to remove kind of all these noise things. Um, then we're interested in, okay, well, I'm not interested in the sine wave on Sikh, but I'm interested to see how often these peaks happen. And so in signal processing, we can use a fast Fourier transform to transform this into kind of time frequency data. So we see a peak maybe at um, every two seconds. So now we know already we've denoised the signal removed everything we're not interested in. And we know that there's a vibration or a rotation happening every two seconds. That's already super interesting information. And very often that can be an indication of whether a machine is going to fail. If that, if instead of every two seconds, it starts to rotate every one second, there's probably something wrong with the machine. Um, so, so we can use this as well in machine learning. So rather than give you this raw waveform, which is lots and lots of data, we clean up the data first. We do some basic analysis, the stuff that we've already been doing for the last 30 years, and that compresses the data a lot. 
So typically we have maybe 5% of the data left, of the signals left. It has cleaned up a lot of the data, so all the noise has been removed. And thus we can deploy much, much smaller machine learning algorithms. Yeah. That's how these two things work together. And that's kind of how we've been able to do real-time audio classification on really tiny MCUs or real-time machine classification on really tiny MCUs. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Jan. And so I, I guess this begs the next question, you know, where can this go? Uh, now, now that you're doing it, now that you're making it happen, um, I guess it's almost limitless in terms of the use cases and, and what you could do with it. But personally for you and Edge Impulse, where can we see this going in the next five years? How is this going to affect people in their everyday life? I, th I think that every embedded engineer, okay, so like how an RTOS is now a fundamental property of virtually every embedded device, mm -hmm. right? How an FPU is now a virtually uh, uh, a property of every embedded device. I think that embedded machine learning will also be part of that. It will not be something you use for literally everything, but it's something you have in your tool belt in case you want to solve a problem. Um, and once enough people understand that, and once enough people have kind of the knowledge of where to apply this, they can start applying it to fields that we have never heard of or problems that we've never encountered. Um, and I think that's where kind of the value of all technology is sitting in. Um, because, you know, even the 25 people in that gym polls or, or the, the 100 people that you guys have can think about all of this, but you need absolute domain knowledge on the field where you're actually deploying your device to really see where you can add that value. Mm -hmm. um, but from there, yeah, really the sky's the limit, right? So we, I think we're in a state where you can run, for example, vibration analysis algorithms, uh, anomaly detection algorithms, mm -hmm. some basic audio uh, classification on on any IoT device, kind of any brownfield IoT device even, which is really cool. But the development in, in ML are not standing still either. We're, we're coming into the state. So this little device is a HiMax. It's a DSP. This mm. thing can do 10 frames a second image classification, in, which is insane. It's almost video, right, on an on a MCU-class device. Can you imagine what you can do if your device can actually understand what it sees? Because right now we're kind of the whole reason why we use accelerometers or temperature sensors or kind of we have all this kind of surrogate sensors that try to guess the world. But if you can just look at, at what is happening, mm. very often you can see that, like how many people are there? Okay, well, here, snap a photo. Cool, I count the number of people. Um, is there a product, is there a fault on my production line? I snap a photo of my product, mm. I see if the screw is in or not. Um, mm. But I think that, that capability, that is going to be super transformational for devices. If you can do that low powered on a battery in real time, I think that's going to be that's going to be mental. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a perfect example there. You know, you have accelerometers on devices at the moment, so so they're aware of, of it being moved and which, which direction, etc. But, you know, potentially you could remove that through ML, couldn't you? You could remove the, the, the need to actually have these additional features on said devices, perhaps making them smaller, cheaper to produce, perhaps? Yeah. I like the, the analogy with a Formula One car. Um, so while they're doing all the uh, test driving they try to stick as many sensors as possible on mm. the car mm. to get information about you know how the car drives um but and this is a, a really cool use case I still want to build a demo around this um they introduce synthesized sensors at some point so 
they realize that if I have sensor A, B, C, and D, and I remove sensor B, I can use machine learning to actually uh, interpolate the value of sensor B. So I don't need to change my control loop, but I can have hmm. a one device less on the car, which means less weight, etc. Um, so that's one that's one part. But I think there's there's lots of other things we can do exactly with this, right? There's there's so much more things that we can sense on our devices that we that we're currently either imprecise or not being able to sense at all where ML can can really help. Yeah. Well what about security, Jan? So often a lot of a lot of people see security as an afterthought. You know, we're very, we're as as a group of businesses, we're very much involved with things like the IOTSF and, and, and various organizations. Um, it does potentially pose some challenges there, right? You know, because if, if the if the device can recognize people distances from an ML base rather than it being a sensor or, or some physical um, accelerometer or what have you, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that and, 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 and as a company? Yeah, that's that's very very serious concern. I and I, my main thing here is, if we're going to collect this kind of data and analyze that, let's make sure we actually process it on the device and don't need to send it to a central location, mm. right? I'm relatively okay with, and that's mainly because I trust Apple. I'm relatively okay that my phone is listening for, hey Siri, all the time. Right, because I know it runs on the DSP only, mm. and it never leaves the device. It would be much more. I would not like it at all if my phone was constantly recording, sending every to, everything to Apple's location, analyzing for that keyword, and then telling that they throw the rest away. Um, so, I think that's one part. Um, try not to get data into a place where it can be stolen. Um, I think for us as well, like if you deploy a model from Edge Impulse to your device, there's no link to us anymore. We just give you source code right. uh, but there's nothing that actually tracks it back to us and but yeah there's a whole bunch of new privacy constraints and, and security constraints that come with the data that you process there that we need to kind of reinvent as an industry as well mm-hmm. um, but it's hard right as I think someone said at some point like the company that invents the green lock the SSL lock for for IOT we're going to get rich but it's an impossible problem to solve well yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Well, impossible or improbable, right? I guess uh, you know. Um, but but it's it. But it's interesting what you're saying. And, and and again, for the benefit of people that are listening to this, so you're effectively what you're saying is, as long as the data is stored natively within the device and it's not sent up the cloud somewhere else, then that's a layer of security by design, which wouldn't allow interpretation or vulnerability to to people hacking that, right? Because it's staying more on the device, right? I think it definitely helps. It yeah. definitely helps. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Regardless, I mean, be considerate, right? Like, no one. We have rules around, you know, where you can put cameras, etc. And and those rules don't fundamentally change in IT. But the chance that your camera is all of a sudden two square centimeters large and can do all the processing on device, yeah, that poses new challenges. I think also mm. in society, in in mm. what do we accept as society? What what do we want with this type of data? That I think yeah. we need to figure out over the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, uh, the technology exists is fantastic. And, and we shouldn't lose sight of the technology. Um, because what we what we can do in the, in the pros and the benefits of this is, 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 is enormous. But it's 
you know, you always have to think of that undercurrent, right? You know, the underbelly of the dark side of this and what people could potentially do it for and, 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 and being attuned to that. Uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's nice to know your thoughts on that and how your, uh, how your views are as, as, a, as a business around it. Because so often sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, it's an afterthought. It's a gold plating exercise, isn't it, right? You, you know, you're doing it retrospectively. Uh, as opposed to thinking it, thinking about it from the start, which which I think in an ever increasing connected environment is is going to pose some some challenges, isn't it? Yeah. So we require actually everyone to accept the responsible AI license before you can use us. Okay. Just you know, we we think that AI should be used for good, and we try to be a, a company for good as well. Um, and yeah, that also means for us that we won't work with certain companies. Mm. Um, so offensive military, for example, we'll never work with that. Um, we, try to, we try to do a lot in conservation to give back. So we do some really cool projects on the African Savannah. Um, we're part of 1% of the planet, so we donate 1% of our revenue to that. Yeah. We try to help with, you know, uh, I, I try to teach Data Science Africa every year. Unfortunately, not this year. Yeah. Um, to to kind of help to bring some knowledge that way. Um, so try to do a part, but yeah, it's hard as a technology company sometimes. Yeah, it is. But I think I, I think the major hurdle is the fact that you're thinking about it and you're doing these things and that you're you're wanting to work with companies that are in that uh, that mindset. You know, uh, being involved with one percent of the planet, being involved with these initiatives, um, and often that's enough, isn't it? Because it means it's resonating with you already. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's never enough, but <laughs> that's that's the thing. Like I said, I'm not a, at the beginning of the conversation, I said I'm not an entrepreneur, but this is the part of, of entrepreneurship that I really love, right? This is, you know, being, a, I think Arm is one of the companies that does, that does this kind of stuff really well. They give you like a day or a couple of days a, a year to work on volunteer projects, etc. But you always need to convince someone that something is a good idea or you should sponsor something. And being able to start your own company and put, these type of things into the DNA of the company from the very start is I think super worth, worthwhile. I think that's really cool if you if you start off your own um, to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jan, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to come onto the IOP, IOT podcast show. I've really enjoyed it um, and especially understanding more about your business. It's, it's truly really at the cutting edge, isn't it? And, um, you know, I hope things go from strength to strength. Um, you know, in the future, it might be nice to get you back on when you're uh, when you're 50, 75 people, when it's being used across 20,000 projects. Well, 20,000 probably be next oh, week at the rate you're going. <laughs> yeah, uh, so maybe, maybe we'll go for 200,000. But um, it's exciting and, it, and it's nice to hear good stories like this. So really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for more episodes in the IoT podcast, the leading podcast among the IoT community.